Hi, listeners. It's Kate from the Spotify original from Parcast, Dictators. Like many of the figures we cover on our show, J. Edgar Hoover had a thirst for control that couldn't be satisfied until he reached the top. As the first director of the FBI, Hoover used his authority to admonish anyone he felt broke the law. But with great power often comes great corruption and even greater conspiracies. Carter and I are thrilled to bring you this special six-part crossover from Dictators and Conspiracy Theories on the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover. You can hear about more of history's most feared leaders by following Dictators free on Spotify. It was the morning of May 2, 1972. J. Edgar Hoover's limousine driver waited outside the director's home. Hoover should have been in the car by 9 a.m., ready to embark across town to FBI HQ. But when the driver saw no sign of him, he grew concerned. Confused, really. The driver had never known Hoover to lag. All his life, Hoover had been like a Swiss watch. Cold, precise, and punctual. At least, until his time ran out. Over at HQ, Hoover's secretary, Helen Gandy, stood with the phone in her hand. The person on the other line had already hung up, but Helen was frozen. She clicked the phone back onto the receiver and immediately picked it up again. She dialed a number, repeated the news, and with that, a chain reaction ignited. Hoover's assistant directors spread the word from there. They dispatched coded telex messages to every field office in America. One of these assistants then began making funeral arrangements. The task felt out of his purview, but this was his final duty to the director. Once Helen was sure all these pieces were in motion, she could focus on the task at hand destroy Hoover's most private files. Welcome back to J. Edgar Hoover, a six-part podcast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. Over the course of this series, we're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known possibly most hated FBI director. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host, Kate. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories, Dictators, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we left off with President Richard Nixon on the brink of firing J. Edgar Hoover, but afraid that doing so might cost him the 1972 election. Today, we'll conclude our special series with the bizarre end to Hoover's career, the political fallout after his death, and the legacy that remains. Because, though history may not repeat itself, it speaks in rhymes. And as we've seen from the FBI in recent years, the power of the director is one to be both used and abused. We'll have all that and more right after this. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back 
along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. By fall of 1971, President Richard Nixon was feeling the strain of his aging FBI director. J. Edgar Hoover insisted that he had control over the Bureau, but recent events said otherwise. Like the burglary in Media, Pennsylvania in March of 1971, when thousands of FBI documents were stolen and leaked to Congress and the press, the documents exposed the inner workings of the FBI's less-than-legal practices. This incident showed just how little federal legislators knew about FBI proceedings. In response, members of Congress called for an investigation into Hoover. President Nixon stopped short of launching a formal investigation. He convinced himself it wasn't worth the drama, despite opposing counsel from his aides. But it was clear that trust in Hoover was tanking fast. Once an investigation was out of the question, members of Congress sought other solutions. Following Hale Boggs' emphatic speech before the House, which we discussed last time, calls for Hoover's resignation mounted. The director's own men even started to turn on him. Assistant Director Bill Sullivan went on a lecture circuit in Washington, D.C. At one appearance, an audience member asked him a polarizing question. Was the American Communist Party behind the racial riots and academic protests erupting across the country? Sullivan replied bluntly, No, it's absolutely untrue. Sullivan continued to pull the thread. He went on to say that even without the Communist Party, there would still be racial tensions in America, and that college students would still dissent. In a matter of moments, one of Hoover's most trusted men completely contradicted the FBI's most long-sought-after target. But Sullivan didn't do this out of pure difference of opinion. In fact, his comment reflected mounting tensions between himself and the director. Publicly, it appeared that Sullivan was ascending the bureau hierarchy, but internally, his relationship with Hoover was far more complicated. 
Sullivan had become frustrated by Hoover's unwillingness to cooperate with other intelligence agencies, like the CIA and NSC. His irritation grew until finally he made a direct appeal to the White House, remove Hoover as soon as possible. In July of 1971, Sullivan made a move to back up this appeal. He went to a Justice Department liaison with briefcases full of wiretap transcripts and warned that Hoover could use the documents to blackmail the president. Though some might argue that Sullivan's aim to oust the director stemmed from bitterness, given how close they'd once been, his concerns about Hoover's fitness for the job were not unfounded. Hoover's instability was even noticeable in his everyday health. For years, Hoover had been receiving supposed vitamin injections every day. No one knew exactly what was in these shots, but whatever it was, it started to either wear thin or take a toll. Hoover's nurse administered the shot each morning, and afterward, Hoover would display near-manic energy until lunch. Then, he'd crash for the rest of the day. In his final years, the director often napped in his office with the door closed until it was time for him to be driven home. Rumors swirled around Washington concerning Hoover's health and how much longer he had left. He was in his late 70s, and he'd led a stressful life. Talk was so prevalent that even the press began quietly preparing their obits. But things got even worse for Hoover when Nixon finally started to lose his patience. The president learned about Hoover's ability to blackmail him and heeded Sullivan's advice. Hoover had to go. In September of 1971, Hoover was invited to have breakfast in the Oval Office. Once the two sat down, Nixon eventually steered their conversation toward the subject of Hoover's retirement. But Hoover deflected with a surprising angle. He insisted that he was worried about Nixon. Hoover told Nixon point blank, if you feel that my staying on as head of the bureau hurts your chances for re-election, just let me know. In that moment, Nixon finally realized what his aides had warned him of all along. Hoover wouldn't resign quietly. And it was even riskier to rock the boat now because an election year was approaching. And nothing frightened Richard Nixon more than losing the presidency he'd clawed his way into. He feared that if he lost the 1972 election to a Democrat, it would not only be the end of his own career, it would also sow chaos for the Republican Party at large. Nixon believed that a Democrat would appoint a new FBI director who would, quote, unquestioningly carry out their bidding against Republicans. Better the devil you know. In light of their meeting, Nixon chose to stall the push for Hoover's retirement. As the president later told his staff, we've got to avoid the situation where he could leave with a blast. We may have on our hands here a man who will pull down the temple with him. Nixon's choice, however, still came with drawbacks. For one, in October of that year, Hoover fired Bill Sullivan by changing the locks on his office door. Not to mention, the distance between the director and the president only widened in the months ahead. Hoover was especially peeved with the fact that Nixon planned to visit the People's Republic of China. 
Hoover saw this as the ultimate betrayal of the cause they had both long pursued. As author Curtis Gentry speculated in his book, J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover was paranoid that Nixon was pursuing a slippery slope, one that might even lead to visiting the USSR. He thought the president was caving to the enemy. Paranoid as he was, Hoover was right about some things. He had come to suspect that his various assistant directors were gunning for his seat upon his retirement, which was true. So, perhaps feeling the end was near and out of pettiness, Hoover undertook efforts to ensure his most covert files remained secret forever. He started sorting his most secret documents into two piles. One set of files was called the personal file, and the documents were meant to be destroyed upon his death. Another was labeled OC, which stood for Official Confidential. Both of these sets of files were kept in a secret location. But Hoover abandoned these efforts when his health continued to decline and visits from his nurse became more frequent. However, he still insisted on going to work and tried to prove his strength. In one of his last official interviews, 77-year-old Hoover was featured on the January 1972 cover of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's official magazine called Nation's Business. In the accompanying article, he asserted, I don't consider my age a valid factor in assessing my ability to continue as director of the FBI any more than it was when, at the youthful age of 29, I was appointed to this position. Similarly, in his March 1972 address to the House Sub Appropriations Committee, where he stood once again to request approval for the Bureau's annual funding, Hoover showed he had no intentions of slowing down. He cited an ambitious slate of new targets that the FBI wanted to pursue beyond the Communist Party, which included the gay and women's liberation movements, the Black Liberation Army, and the Weathermen. And it was effective. Congressman John Rooney, who chaired the Appropriations Committee, praised Hoover's leadership. The FBI received all of its requested appropriations for the next year. Hoover left the session with an undoubted air of self-satisfaction. Around three months later, on May 2, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover died of a heart attack. And before his body was even taken from his home, a quiet scurry formed across town at FBI headquarters. Even though Hoover was dead, his files remained, as did the visceral fear of what damage they might do. Coming up, the race to secure Hoover's files. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. And now back to the story. On the morning of May 2nd, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover's house staff wondered where the director was. It was almost 9 a.m., and his driver was waiting outside. It was unlike Hoover to run late. Finally, a staff member decided to check on him. Then, in the clear light of morning, Hoover was discovered lifeless in bed. It must have felt surreal to them, the end of an era, for worse or for better. The staff phoned Hoover's personal physician. After an examination, it was clear the director had died of heart disease. But the time for mourning would come later. Immediately, two more phone calls were placed, one to Hoover's lifelong friend and the executor of his estate, Clyde Tolson. The two had had dinner together just the night before. The other call was to Hoover's personal secretary, Helen Gandy. Helen had always been known as the gateway to the director. She had been his secretary since 1918. Her career was her top focus. She'd never married. Her commitment to him would remain constant, even in death. Once she got the news, Helen deputized the assistant directors to begin funeral arrangements and to spread the word that Hoover was dead. And word traveled fast. Across the country, a frenzy swept through the newsrooms. They pulled their pre-written obituaries, polished their headlines, and went to press. But not all outlets had the same take on Hoover's death. Some large publishers, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, both of which had seen their fair share of contention with the director, remembered him as both a blessing and a curse. As the New York Times wrote, Hoover was, quote, an almost mythical American who inspired both dread and veneration in his lifetime. The Times coverage wasn't always so nuanced. Remember, the paper praised the Palmer raids. From those the director had targeted, he was given no sympathy. For instance, the general secretary of the U.S. Communist Party called Hoover a, quote, servant of racism, reaction, and repression, and a political pervert whose masochistic passion drove him to savage assaults upon the principles of the Bill of Rights. Others, though, treated the late director as a fallen legend. Ahead of his funeral, thousands of FBI agents flew into Washington to honor him. Hoover was the first person in U.S. history who wasn't a president, congressperson, or military veteran to lay in state at the rotunda. At the church service that followed, President Nixon put no stops on eulogizing the late director. He told the crowd, 
The greatness of J. Edgar Hoover will remain inseparable from the greatness of the organization that he created and gave his whole life to building, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Perhaps to underscore his praise for the director, that same day, Nixon decreed that the new FBI complex that was under construction would be known as the J. Edgar Hoover Building. But the president's high praise wouldn't last. Nixon would famously curse the director's surveillance later on, behind closed doors, when he exclaimed, He's got files on everybody, goddammit. In fact, Nixon tried to get his hands on those files. Before Hoover was even buried, Justice Department attorney L. Patrick Gray was directed to obtain any documents that might be damaging to the Nixon administration. But not only was Gray unsure of where to look or what exactly to look for, the files were already gone, thanks to Helen Gandy. While the rest of the Bureau shuffled around and tried to figure out who would be named acting director, Helen was already doing exactly what she'd promised upon Hoover's death. Helen knew Hoover's filing system like the back of her hand. Over the course of his career, Hoover's highly sensitive material had been split into two different files, which were then stashed in separate locations. According to author Kurt Gentry, one type of file would be stored in the, quote, special file room. It contained information on undercover employees, and it was held by the National Defense Division. The other, more restricted set of files was kept in the secret location we mentioned before, which turned out to be Helen's office. Helen started the long and arduous process of shredding any, quote, personal files Hoover had marked with a D for destroy. As for the OC files in Helen's office, Helen gave them to FBI Deputy Associate Director Mark Felt. The dozen drawers she dropped off contained at least 84 files worth of blackmail and distasteful gossip. Someone once described them as, quote, 12 drawers full of political cancer. As for the so-called personal files, Those had to be sorted through carefully and in secret. According to Gentry's book, in the weeks after Hoover's burial, at least 32 file drawers were trucked across town to his former home. Helen insisted the files were being moved for storage purposes and contained no official bureau material. She said the documents were things like Hoover's own tax returns, personal correspondence, and stock purchases. Though it is worth pointing out that Hoover's tax returns could be considered official FBI documents since the Bureau prepared his taxes every year. Over the next two weeks, Helen shredded the personal files. The paper trail of the director's most sensitive information vanished. By the time the Justice Department realized a few files were missing, three years had passed. At that point, it would be extremely difficult to figure out whether the files had been destroyed. If they were, the evidence was long gone. All that was left was the looming shadow of Hoover's 48-year reign. The Bureau had a difficult time filling Hoover's shoes. L. Patrick Gray III was named acting director the day after Hoover's death. But while Gray did have a good relationship with the Nixon administration, 
there were questions about whether he'd become the permanent successor. Gray lacked FBI experience. Instead, he came from a role as an assistant attorney general at the Justice Department. To name a relative outsider as the FBI's most powerful leader was a move that left many bureau agents infuriated. It felt distinctly partisan. But Gray soon faced his own downfall in the wake of Watergate. While it would take months for America to learn the true scope of the Watergate scandal, the break-in itself occurred about a month after Hoover's death in June of 1972. A few days after the burglary, Nixon had a directive for the FBI. Don't go any further into this case, period. The request fell at the feet of acting director Gray. And according to tapes later released by the White House, Nixon and his chief of staff had backroom conversations with Gray to convince him to drop the investigation. Gray obliged. But in February of 1973, during his confirmation hearing to become permanent director, Gray told the Senate the complete opposite. He insisted that he'd sent agents out full force to investigate the Watergate break-in. He also admitted that he had turned over raw FBI files from the investigation to White House counsel John Dean. Suddenly, investigators' eyes turned toward Dean and the White House. By April of that same year, he'd admitted to also burning a pile of confidential documents from Howard Hunt's safe, the man who'd organized the Watergate bugging. Ultimately, Gray withdrew his name from the running without ever getting the opportunity to serve as permanent director of the FBI. The timing of Hoover's death and the chaos it ignited indicated an undeniable truth. The government needed more oversight on the Bureau. Oddly enough, the New York Times obituary for Hoover had forecast just that. It warned that Hoover's death would open up a can of worms over the agency's functions, and that Congress would have to determine whether to put more resources toward combating organized crime and white-collar offenders. For two years, the prosecution of Nixon's band of white-collar criminals was national news. It made Congress hungrier than ever to see who else needed to be held accountable for unknown crimes. And all evidence indicated that America's intelligence agencies had many more skeletons in their closets. Coming up, the FBI's power is finally checked. And now back to the story. The seismic wave of Watergate knocked Congress off its feet. Legislators realized that decades of J. Edgar Hoover's unchecked power had eroded the foundations of the federal justice system, if that system was ever just at all. The need to investigate the nation's surveillance agencies was more urgent than ever. To that end, committees were formed in the House and Senate in 1975. They were chaired by Otis Pike and Frank Church, respectively. The committees uncovered troves of information that had been swept under the rug, under the guise of protecting national security. And nearly all of it occurred on Hoover's watch, along with his counterparts at the CIA and NSC. 
The committees found out that widespread wiretapping and bugging of American citizens, which included government officials and civil servants, had been occurring for decades. The Church Committee, as it was known, held a series of hearings to investigate the legality of the FBI, CIA, and NSA's intelligence operations. Particularly, they were concerned about the surveillance of political activists, including Martin Luther King Jr. Following the hearings, certain legal guardrails were put in place to prevent future directors from keeping such a tight hold on the FBI like Hoover had. For example, in 1976, Congress passed an amendment limiting a director's term to 10 years. Any extensions would have to be approved by Congress. Limiting term length was as symbolic as it was functional. To check the power of the director's office was to re-emphasize that their job was to serve Congress and the country, not the other way around. Additionally, the Church Committee's findings prove there was a need for continuous oversight of America's surveillance and law enforcement agencies. So, select intelligence committees in the Senate and House were created in 1976 and 1977, respectively, which continue to function today. In recent years, they've reviewed cases like hate speech on internal government chat platforms and Russian interference in the 2016 election. But while new provisions were put into place to prevent the type of partisanship that J. Edgar Hoover held as director, the FBI didn't undergo as drastic a transformation as some expected. The FBI was a moving target. Neither its own hierarchy or Congress could anticipate every challenge the agency might face in the future. And as we know, the Bureau is certainly not immune from controversy or corruption. Each decade since Hoover's death has brought its own unique set of pressures to the FBI. And Hoover's precedents have been extremely hard to shake. The dawn of the 1980s marked the Bureau's abscam operation, when agents went undercover to pose as associates of a fictional Arab businessman and sheik. Their goal was to lure congresspeople into taking bribes and use that as proof of more widespread political corruption. News of the operation became public in February of 1980, and it faced heavy criticism. It was evident the FBI had used its position and resources to wheedle the congresspeople into entrapment. This posed the question of whether such undercover tactics were ethical. A Senate Select Committee was tasked with determining whether Abscam's means justified its ends. Because on one hand, the sting operation did reveal deep corruption in the government. But on the other, the FBI engaged convicted criminals as informants and paid them to help carry out the mission. Plus, as the Washington Post reported, there was concern about the agency's, quote, motives and methods and allegations that the constitutionally mandated separation of powers had been violated. Ultimately, the select committee found that there wasn't enough evidence the FBI had done anything improper, but it did warn that the operation dangerously towed the line of violating privacy rights and civil liberties. 
The Bureau was advised to update its undercover guidelines and begin looping in Congress on an annual basis when it came to covert operations. Then, with the 1990s, came the end of director William Sessions' career. While Sessions was praised for making advancements to the FBI's fingerprinting practices and diversity initiatives, he was also prone to indulging in the luxuries of the job. For example, he was investigated for using FBI planes and cars for personal visits, using FBI funding to cover home improvement projects, and failing to pay taxes on the customary bureau limousine that he used daily. Behaviors taken straight from Hoover's playbook. When Attorney General Janet Reno advised President Clinton that Sessions was no longer fit for the job, Sessions pushed back hard. He was hell-bent on staying on. But low morale within the Bureau and pressure from the Justice Department ultimately prompted Clinton to fire Sessions in 1993. The new millennium seemed like a new era for America, but the 2000s began with a national security crisis, the September 11th terror attacks. This placed the FBI on high alert and resulted in the passing of the Patriot Act in October of 2001. The law allowed expanded domestic and international surveillance on behalf of federal law enforcement. However, while most Americans believe this was to stop terrorism, they vastly underestimated just how far the Patriot Act reached. The Patriot Act allowed authorities to seize nearly anything containing data or information from ordinary Americans. This included things like books, credit records, and computer hard drives. Agents also had the power to surveil personal emails, bank records, and even circulation records and internet logs at public institutions like libraries. Unsurprisingly, many drew connections back to the mother of all spying operations, COINTELPRO, especially in terms of compromising civil liberties. And it was clear that the invasiveness of the Patriot Act was heavily biased. The policies mainly targeted Muslims, which fostered a rise in discrimination and hate crimes. It was an atmosphere of paranoia and fear that could have been plucked straight from Hoover's Cold War days. In 2019, the FISA court, short for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, found that the FBI's use of the Patriot Act to spy on Americans violated the Fourth Amendment. Unsurprisingly, when some of the surveillance laws under the act expired in 2020, Congress opted not to renew them. The FBI still faces great scrutiny today. Following the 2014 fatal shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, the Bureau began tracking political activists associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. This later expanded into nationwide assessments, so to speak, of those the FBI deemed black identity extremists, which continued until 2020. Obviously, this mission required significant manpower, and that turned the spotlight back on the FBI to explain what exactly counted as dangerous. There were questions about whether the FBI was putting sufficient resources towards investigating other, actual dangers, like far-right extremist groups. 
As the New York Times reported in 2020, the Department of Homeland Security deemed violent white supremacy the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland, and that white supremacists were the most deadly among domestic terrorists in recent years. Monitoring BLM hasn't been the Bureau's only surveillance of activists in recent years. The FBI also came under criticism for how it tracked activists involved with the Standing Rock demonstrations and anti-pipeline activists in Oregon. In 2017, The Guardian reported that members of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, or JTTF, were investigating protesters who opposed the Dakota Access Pipeline. This was particularly worrisome because of the long history of federal investigations targeting indigenous groups and political activists. Similarly, the Jordan Cove pipeline demonstrations in 2019 proved that the FBI, even subtly, was still working behind the scenes. As The Guardian reported, the Bureau's Portland JTTF offered to host open source and social media training to local sheriffs to allow them to become more adept at tracking the online habits of protesters. Through all these various incidents, it's clear that there's still a pressing concern about how far the FBI is willing to flex its power and how long it will take for possible abuses of power to actually come to light. 50 years after Hoover's death, it's evident that regulating the FBI may be as challenging as ever. And that's unlikely to change because surveillance agencies by nature operate in the shadows. It's hard to draw the line between what's constitutional and what's not when the public is largely in the dark. Which makes it all the more important to consider what we do know now. We know that despite the passing of time, Hoover's name and his vision are built into the framework of our nation. To the chagrin of many, His name is still on the FBI building in Washington, D.C. This speaks to the difficulty of what it means to learn from Hoover's legacy, because that legacy is a kaleidoscope of irreconcilable differences. He sought justice, but played God when it came to deciding who deserved civil liberties. He wanted the position of director to be patriotic, loyal, and moral but he built up that position through blackmail, subversion, and racism. He was rigid when the nation called for strength, but failed to adapt when America needed flexibility. And his obsession with power inevitably became his own downfall. He idealized a puritanical way of life that drove him to steal secrets. Yet he trusted very few to actually keep the secrets he stole. Hoover died with his spoils. He had no true successor to leverage his troves of damaging information, so it was destroyed. And in the end, that's what he'll be remembered for. Thanks for tuning in to our six-part special on J. Edgar Hoover. Amongst the many sources we used, we found Curtis Gentry's book, J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, 
and Tim Weiner's Enemies especially useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories, Dictators, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators was written by Mackenzie Moore, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, and researched by Brian Petrus. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.